You made it. Here. Finally. Checked out of office to check into the sweet views of that place you've always wanted to go. You know the one. It's nice. Even the kids like it. This place is so cool. And they never like it. Mom, can we go to the pool? Look at that. Not even asking for the Wi-Fi. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. Annie had an earache on a Saturday of all days. So her mom brought her to Minute Clinic at CVS, where you can see a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials like pain relief products, all in one visit. Even on evenings and weekends. You can even see us online with telehealth options. For quality, affordable care on your schedule, visit Minute Clinic at CVS. That's how healthier happens together. Services vary by location. Prescriptions can be obtained at pharmacy of choice. Visit MinuteClinic.com for details. Do you know difficulty? I think a lot of us are looking at our difficulties in different ways. I mean, the truth is that some of us have it more difficult than others. My next guest is Ashley Smith. And Ashley has a very unique story. Ashley is a licensed clinical psychologist, but she also has a degenerative retinal disease that has rendered her legally blind with the potential of becoming completely blind. What would you do if you were to become completely blind? How would you function? How would you live? Ashley's an awesome person, and her perspective on it will surprise you. It's positive, it's bright, and she's just wonderful to talk to. I'm happy to introduce to you Ashley Smith. Okay, here we go. So, well, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. I really appreciate it, Ashley. I appreciate being asked. I'm looking forward to talking. Well, I saw your um, it was your profile on LinkedIn, and mm-hmm. I was just really, um, it caught my eye. You know, I just thought, wow, this is pretty interesting stuff. And uh, I wanted to just learn more about you and what you're up to, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm happy to share I mean, my story by day. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, and I've specialized in treatment of anxiety and related disorders for more than a decade now. I started studying anxiety first in grad school way back in 2002. So with that, I specialize in a type of treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy. And essentially, I think of it as like physical therapy for your brain. So really approaching anxiety from this understanding of this is how our minds work. And therefore, these are the things we can do to train them to work differently or to work more optimally. And then on the personal side, I have um, I have a rare degenerative retinal disease. So um, up until about a year ago, I didn't even have a, a diagnosis to explain vision loss. And I am legally blind and it's been a progressive Thing, but without a diagnosis, that means there's been no uh, information about the course. Uh, so I don't know what to expect as far as how much it will progress. And that also means no cure, at least at this point. And that's been tough. Uh, and I, I hit a point when I had to stop driving maybe four years ago that mm-hmm. really, that was um, kind of a dark spot for me. And I realized, you know, I was feeling really overwhelmed and stuck and scared. 
And I have this awesome skill set from my day job. It was time to use it. And I dove um, into the science of happiness and well-being and have uh, really gotten into that side of things as well from uh, health and well-being and what makes life worth living kind of perspective. And ultimately, things sort of dovetailed into my new passion project, which is Peak Mind, the Center for Psychological Strength where I'm on a mission um, in partnership with a dear friend of mine who I met way back in grad school um, to, to bring the tools of psychology and life design to mass to the masses so that I really believe it's stuff everybody could benefit from to make, make life better. Of course, who doesn't want to make life better, right? Right. <laughs> well, so tell me like when, like what's kind of the everyday feeling of kind of knowing that you're well you're legally blind but that i think it's i read that you're eventually you will be completely blind is that a fact or no uh it depends who you ask so i really see it as it's an unknown so i've had some doctors who have said yep it's a matter of time i've had other doctors who have said absolutely not so the reality mm-hmm. is it's a really rare poorly understood condition and i don't think we really know um how far it'll progress. So, right. yeah. And what was the scary part? Like you said, it was, it's just been scary. Like take me through that. What's been yeah. the most difficult aspect of that? Well, it's interesting. Cause when I, when I think back, um, like in my journey with really it's acceptance kind of coming to terms with it, I spent most of my life. Well, honestly, for most of my life I could pass so, uh, as being typical. So no one knew that I had a disability because I either faked it well or could compensate in ways that it wasn't very noticeable. Um, So, and I I spent a lot of my time as a teen and young adult uh, feeling really ashamed of it. And um, I really viewed it as a flaw and honestly was pretty convinced that if people knew that about me, that they would reject me or shun me in some way. And then when things progressed to the point, like when it, when it got to the point where I had to stop driving, I really couldn't fake it anymore. I, I lost yeah. its, um, its central vision. So I, I missed the, the details in the middle. So that's faces and uh, print. So I have a hard time reading books now and um, things. So it's more noticeable in my day-to-day life. And I basically couldn't hide it anymore. And at that point, at that low point when I stopped driving, um, Honestly, it was, it was all consuming. Like every time, if I'm awake, my eyes are open. I'm aware of the fact that I, that I can't see what I used to be able to. And I'm I'm aware of what's missing. And that also used to come with just this, this echoing thought of, I can't see, I can't see. And all of the fears and implications with that, like I'm, I'm an independent woman. And I felt like I was losing my independence. I felt like I wouldn't be able to have relationships or have the career that I wanted. And then over the last few years, um, kind of through this personal and professional journey, I'm at a point now where I can say, I mean, honestly, my vision's the worst it's ever been. Um, It's certainly not getting any better. And yet I don't think about it every day. There are days where I just don't. I mean, it's not that I don't notice it. It's that it doesn't bother me. And I wouldn't say I'm happy about it. I'm not at that point where I'm like, Ooh, I'm so grateful to have (laughs) this. 
Uh, maybe I'll get there, but um, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but I mean, if you if you gave me the choice of twenty twenty, I'd take it in a heartbeat. Um, of course, right? But but at this point, I can say you know my, my biggest fears were that there's no way I could be happy with blindness, and I've my experience has just proven that wrong. And in sharing my story, I mean. I launched a blog in 2017 where I was very open about vision loss and that was terrifying. Mm -hmm. And yet every time I share the response I get is, is welcoming and supportive and all of those fears that people would reject me haven't been founded either. And that those experiences did a lot to take away any fear. I mean, I still, I don't love the idea of going blind, but I'm also pretty confident that I'll figure it out and adapt and that there are ways to find happiness regardless of disability. And that's pretty empowering. Do you think that, you know, you said you've had such a positive response. Do you think that people are warmer, kinder, more receiving of things than maybe the world is saying that people are through? Absolutely. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I see that a lot, like in my day job, you know, working with people with anxiety or OCD, there's a lot of shame that goes along with that, a lot of stigma with mental health. And yet I I see the the cultural wind shifting as people are starting to be more open and sharing. And I think that's a tremendously beneficial thing to do because then we get a chance to see that we're all more similar than not. And that shared, that shared humanity is, is really I think important. I think so. We're on the move here. Just think you're seeing, so you're seeing me. I, well, maybe a little bit, right? <laughs> Not too much. Yeah. Completely, I, but, yeah. I'm mean, closing up to my screen. I can see you. Uh, all right. still I'm still so I got to move over to uh, the beach, man. I got I feel okay. like the, the vibe of the beach is just, uh, it's calming. You know, I just, I like feeling centered being on the beach and stuff, oh, you know? I love the, the beach is my happy place. You know, just just the feeling of it. Mm-hmm. But like you were saying, I think people are more open than the world. I think the world says, hey, you know, people are just so divisive. They're crazy. They're right. But I don't see that in my in my daily experience with people. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's something that's really important to try to connect to other people. And the way we do that, it's it's hard to have a genuine connection if you've got walls up or if you're hiding or presenting a mask, you, you have to be authentic. And then people typically respond in kind. And if they, well, I haven't had the experience where someone has responded in a really negative way. I mean, I get some insensitivity or people don't know how to handle it. It makes them uncomfortable. Um, it's sort of like if you have a terminal illness, people get kind of uncomfortable. Like, can I ask you how you're doing? Can I talk about it? Uh, but I think the more we do, the better off we all are. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, um, it's interesting, the insensitivity element. Mm-hmm. What is what is the insensitivity aspect to it that you that you have received? Yeah, I think um, I'm much I'm probably it, it might even be just on my side of things, like because I'm a lot more peace with my vision. I can probably handle just about anything someone could say. Um, but when I was younger and, and more sensitive about it, jokes, um, felt insensitive sometimes like, it, d- depending on my relationship with the person. There are right, some people right. who I remember sort of my like disability coming out and people who knew me when I was more hi- hidden with it. 
remember telling a friend and he popped a joke right off the bat. And, and in that moment and in that relationship, it was the best thing because it was very much how we would relate over anything else. When I told other friends about it, they'd have this horrified look of how could you joke about it? And I was like, how could we not? We joke about everything else. <laughs> it was, it was brilliant. Um, but, and, and then I have people who it seems like it, it becomes the, the defining feature. And so then there's always a comment or like an introduction. This is actually, she can't see you. And sometimes oh that's gosh. helpful. It's like a navigation, like if I'm meeting you out in public, it is helpful to wave because I do have trouble with faces. Um, right. like if I can't touch you, your face isn't clear, but I'm not going to run into stuff. So like, it's right. helpful to have that, but um, sometimes it's hard or people, they, they, I have a few friends who point blank looked me in the eye and said, so are you going to go blind? Just like you asked. And I, I appreciate that just, it's a forwardness and it's just an openness and it says, Hey, this topic isn't off limits. We can talk. And that's, I think a really important thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, sometimes people tiptoe around things mm -hmm. and they go, Oh, this person has this thing. I don't know if I should talk about it. I should just kind of like be around the bush and I just wanted to know, like, what were your thoughts behind potentially that happening to you? Yeah. And I think it's good to explore our feelings about people. A lot of people have different things going on in their lives. So it's, it's important to talk about it, I think, on some level. Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of just direct communication in general. Like, it's okay to ask, I think. And yeah. um, I think the more we can also, just as a culture, get comfortable with, uncomfortable topics and uncomfortable emotions, the better off we're going to be. There are times when life hurts and when it's painful and it's scary and being able to just have an open, honest conversation about that is really important. So what led you to um, psychology? Where did that drive or motivation yeah. come from to get into it? Um, honestly, as a, a freshman in college, I was taking intro to psych and it was the only textbook that didn't put me to sleep. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty interesting. I'll just major in it. And to really do anything with psychology, you have to go to grad school. And, and back then I, I had some perfectionistic tendencies. So I was like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go all the way. So PhD it is. And I liked clinical in the, uh, I thought learning about um, mental health disorders where it was interesting. And I liked the idea of being able to help people. So that's kind of how I, I got into it. And then as far as specializing in anxiety disorders, that was sort of a lucky stumble. I started working with a professor and that was her area of expertise. And as I got into it, it just makes sense. And I really like that there is a clear scientific basis. There's a clear theory that, that guides treatment. So it's not this fluffy kind of woo woo stuff. It's, it's very, I, and that appeals to me. I like the being able to say, here's what's going on. Here's why it's happening. Here's what we're going to do and seeing a really noticeable improvement in people. How was, um, being in, how was studying psychology, um, being a licensed clinical psychologist affected how you behave personally? Yeah, you can't, I get, I get that question um, a lot of like, are you analyzing me or, or, you mm. know, people will ask my close, um, close folks, like what it's like. Um, I think in a lot of ways, it, it's been a blessing because I certainly practice what I preach and cognitive behavioral therapy is all about uh, patterns of thoughts and feelings and behaviors. And with that, I've, I think I've gotten a pretty good handle on mindset and rational thinking 
Uh, it's not often that my emotions kind of get the better of me. I feel mm -hmm. them. Um, and I, I think that's important. It's not that I don't have them, but I don't lose my cool very often. I'm pretty good at when I feel anxious, knowing that, oh, that just means I need to face this fear. And mm -hmm. so there's been some really great skills that I think have, have certainly benefited me. And it's, I think it's really helpful in terms of, I mean, I, I can't step out of that worldview that how we think and how we feel drives our behaviors. And, and that's how I tend to view the world. And, and it, it makes sense to me. And um, I would argue that's a, a good thing, but you'd have to ask my partner and my, my family if they agree. Um, but I would, I would think so. Helps with empathy. How does, um, you know, I'm thinking, I'm, I got all these things I'm thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> lots of things to discuss, but uh -huh. how does being legally blind and having your practice affect how you do your job? Like how does, is it different than if you were seeing somebody like really um, like seeing them, like you had 20, 20 vision versus. Yeah. So there've been a few changes. Like I, I used to do out of the office sessions. So um, like, because if you from working with someone with social anxiety, that's essentially a fear of judgment. So we would go to the mall and do embarrassing things to kind of get mm -hmm. used to that, overcome that fear. Uh, or, or to do work in people's homes. So I don't do any any out of office stuff anymore. Um, and I don't, I, I certainly don't do some aspects that, that other psychologists do like intelligence assessments and neuropsych testing. I didn't like that stuff even when I could see better. Um, so honestly, like the, aside from not leaving the office, that what I noticed because my office is small enough and I can control the lighting that I can pick mm -hmm. up on a lot of it. So it's, it's just the face that's pretty fuzzy. So I would miss if someone's eyes are tearing up. I'm pretty open with folks these days and there are enough other body language cues or verbal cues that I don't think I miss a lot of the nuance. As my vision loss progresses, that'll be something that I'll have to, to figure out. And I had the, the luxury of meeting with a psychologist who is almost 100% blind and seeing, okay, this, it, it can be done. And that was the fear that I wouldn't be able to do my job or to do it effectively was definitely something I struggled with. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. oh, that makes sense. It sounds like it's mm -hmm. a kind of evolving situation. For Absolutely. You, right. Mm -hmm. You're kind of trying to manage and things are changing mm -hmm. over time and how you, how you manage you know, um, kind of the deterioration or potential deterioration mm -hmm. of it with your practice at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, technological advances help. So I don't have to do any, I, I don't do a lot of handwriting anymore. I mean, one, mm -hmm. my handwriting isn't even English. Um, it's just right. scratches, but uh, <laughs> so it helps to have you know, like electronic medical records now and things like that. So because then I'm able, they have accessibility features built in to everything these days. So I can zoom in and um, be able to make it big enough to read and that. So I can still use email. I still use um, computer-based, text-based documentation. And that's helpful. Yeah, certainly. Um, do you think that people are more open to therapy? today versus in the past? Yes, it's getting there. It's getting there. I still, I still see a lot 
Um, there are a lot of attitudes that, you know, if it's below the neck, it's medical. And if it's above the neck, it's mental. And I mm-hmm. personally, I really don't like the, the distinction between mental and physical health. There's such a, I mean, your brain is part of your body. Um, and when a, a lot of things that we consider mental health are actually brain-based issues. Um, but, and there's just such an interaction. So I prefer to think of it as just all health. But people are starting to understand that, at least in some regards, and anxiety is one of the better understood phenomena out there. Um, And I think there's some shifting in attitudes, but there is still the, if you're anxious or you're depressed, there's something wrong with you, you need to suck it up, or it must be your parents' fault, or it must be related to trauma. And that's not always the case. Sometimes it's just physiologically, your nervous system is more active. Yeah. Do do you think that people are more anxious these days versus uh, in the past or is technology a part of that? Tell me a little bit your thoughts on that. Yeah. It's pretty well documented that the rates of anxiety um, and depression are increasing. And I think it goes beyond just, oh, we're better at catching it or we're talking more about it. It seems like even when you account for that, the actual rates are increasing and I think there are a few things that are that are contributing. I do think technology is part of it. We are glued to these smartphones. Um, we are connected 90% of the waking time. And that has an influence on our brain and on our nervous system. When we're constantly getting notifications and pings, that interrupts and kind of hijacks your attentional system. So you're having to shift attention and then shift it back. And, and all of that's very taxing. So... Um, in addition, we're underslept. People are not getting nearly as much sleep or physical activity. And those are both critical for brain health. And if that's, um, if those aren't in place, then we're going to be more anxious. We're going to be more overwhelmed or we're going to be more depressed or all of the above. There's some debate about the role of social media in particular. I think that fosters comparisons. Um, I heard the phrase once, don't compare your you're behind the scenes to someone else's highlight reel, which is essentially what happens when we're scrolling through our news feeds. Right. And and the more time you're on social media, you're also just passively consuming stuff, uh, which I don't think is is necessarily good for us. We need to be more actively engaged in meaningful activities. And those social connections are, in a lot of ways, we're more connected than we've ever been, but loneliness is increasing. It's an epidemic. And American adults have fewer close friends now than they did a generation ago. And, and it's not just because of social media and, and technology. Right, we, right. we move and, and things like that. But there are a lot of things I think about our current societal kind of lifestyle that just aren't good for us from a genetic biological standpoint. Let's talk about loneliness, because that's mm-hmm. something I have noticed tremendously in the lives of people through research, um, Mm -hmm. observational things um, beyond let's take away the social media element because I think that gets blamed for like everything, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and and there's a part of that. But what's dive deeper into what is that phenomenon outside of social media being the culprit for that? Yeah. So when I think about loneliness and and it's not necessarily an area that I've done you know, academic research. And so I've certainly read some and, and it's more coming from just sort of taking psychology and my work with people. But it, it seems like 
I would assume there's a few factors. Like we were talking about, you know, being open and talking about struggles. People don't. And whenever we put up those walls and we kind of carry that shame, that's a disconnection. And so to really connect with people, you have to be open. Um, so I think we're not doing that as much. I think there's a lot of fear that's just sort of, I mean, I, I, I don't watch the news and I haven't in probably 10 years because I can't I don't find either, a, by the way. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think a lot of people are going toward that because one, it's not providing facts and it's more um, opinions and and it's designed to prey on our It's fears, editorial right? at this point. It's yes. more editorial based news. It's not yeah. like just getting factual information like this happened. It's just, it's editorialized. Right. right. And, it, and it sparks this anxiety. It gives this idea that the world is a really dangerous place. So then what right. happens? When you're out, um, we don't talk to people. I have to say, when I stopped driving, I started taking Uber because I live in a city that doesn't have great public transportation. And I was really surprised at what a difference that made just in my day-to-day -day happiness and feeling yeah. of connection. Because rather than getting in the, in the car with a stranger and hopping on my phone, I had a conversation. So I got, even if it was you know 15 minutes or 10 minutes, I got to connect with another human being who I wouldn't normally talk to. A lot of times it's people who don't look like me or have very different mm -hmm. backgrounds. And that was really important. And that's part of what I think that's connection. And so I think connection is the antidote to loneliness and whether it's just those 10 minutes versus your intimate partner, um, connection is, is important. And I don't think people do that. And I remember I was uh, taking a trip with a girlfriend and we went to Iceland and another friend of mine had said, oh, my good friend from high school is going to be in that same city. You should meet up with her. And my immediate response was awesome, right? A friend of my yeah. friend. Yeah. Why wouldn't I? But the one I was traveling with when I told her, hey, we're going to have a we're going to have brunch with, you know, a friend of a friend. Her immediate response was, oh, my God, why? What, what if she's weird? So there was this <laughs> sort of closed offness um, that. I think it is, is, is something that's there, right? Like we're, we're taught to be judgmental and to, to turn that toward not just ourselves, but to other people. And I think that contributes to feeling isolated or lonely. I think you're right. And before we get back into it, uh, I'm a big fan of Iceland. I've been there three mm -hmm. times. Love nice. it. Going back next week, actually. Are you really? <laughs> yeah, I love my wife and I. It's a it's a special place. It's uh, a wonderful, very different place. You know, um, we discovered it about six years ago and um, just very peaceful. Uh, it's great. Place for us. I yeah. went because so I start part of this, like, um, you know, coming acceptance and really pursuing a happy life. I sort of stumbled into this practice of having at least one new experience a week. And uh -huh. It sort of started on a whim for New Year's in 2017. And now I'm wrapping up three years in a row. So I haven't missed a week yet, but okay. what, what it's done is it's been, I mean, I would, I would recommend it as a practice for anybody because it's, it keeps things interesting and it has me seeking out new. And I've found my comfort zone has expanded openness. My tolerance for awkward is pretty high at this point. I've ended up in some awkward situations. Tolerance for awkward. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, you I like that in and embrace it. Um, but Iceland came because seeing the Northern Lights was on my bucket list. I wanted to see it while I knew I'd still be able to. Oh, wow. Because I, I, I don't know if I'll be able to in five years. And so that also has prompted me to kind of seize things. Because um, it 
it's not guaranteed. And so we went and in February, which is kind of worst weather, but best time to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what we did. And is- you saw the Northern Lights. It did. Man, we got a lot of guys yeah. saw the Northern Lights in Iceland too. That's why we went uh, in December uh-huh. one year, because uh-huh. it's so dark there, you know. Right. And, yeah. Uh, it's just magical. And uh, but yeah. man, for you, I never thought about it that sense that you may be trying to right. see things because you may never see them again. Right. Yeah. It's powerful. It's very powerful. It is. It is, and it's definitely motivated me to, if I want to do it, then make it happen just as a, a lifestyle approach, um, which has been really fun. You have a great sense of self and um, just uh, an aliveness that I, I really respect. Thanks. I think it's really it, cool. It's been know. a lot of work. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And, and I, I feel that when I, especially when I think back to what it was like in my headspace a couple of years ago, um, where I felt completely defined by disability and and lost and scared and was looking at this very dark future and it's it's amazing I I mean I I would lump it under like the building psychological strength category Mm -hmm. but it's amazing what doing that does for our experience and you know in life yeah I would say so you know Mm -hmm. and, and talking about the whole loneliness thing is I think that um you know, I've had my kind of things about social media as good, is it bad? And as mm-hmm. I think part of my, my podcast, I'm continuing to involve my my feelings about it. Mm-hmm. And one thing I think is, I think it can be very good. I just think that people are not using it the way that creates true connection with each other. I, I agree. Right? Like I yeah. use it to do this, to have right. conversations with people, like very meaningful conversations with people all the time. Yeah. I very rarely have these surface conversations on social media. I mean, I just have LinkedIn, so I, I've just chosen to kind of focus on one thing, what right. I can do. And then mm-hmm. I try to focus on having meaningful conversations on the phone or through, you know, uh, this visual mm-hmm. aspect. But I think a lot of mm-hmm. people kind of use it as kind of a cruising tool to kind of Absolutely. see what other people are doing, but never engaging, you know? Yeah, I think because I don't think social media is inherently evil. I certainly use it and not always in really wise ways. I think it's all about being mindful and intentional about it. If we think about input matters. So I think whatever it is we're taking in is going to have an impact, right? Whatever you think about, you're going to think about more. And so if you carefully curate your news feeds, whatever platform you're on so that you're seeing stuff that is going to have a positive impact. Great. If you use it, I don't live in the same state as my parents or my nephews or my brother. Mm -hmm. And so it's a nice way to stay connected in that and to still feel like I'm part of their lives. I think it like the downside is, oh, I also don't social media on my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think the downside is people use it as a very mindless habit. They're picking their phone up hundreds of times a day and they're scrolling. Sure. So they're not able to be bored or be present. Um, the other, and, and I think the other thing is like our minds, our brains are kind of wired to go until the end. And which is why like back in the day before Netflix and don't get me wrong, I love Netflix, but when me there too. wasn't streaming, <laughs> You'd watch your episode, right? And then it would end and you'd have to wait a week till the next one. But now it just rolls one into the next and and human brains are like, go till the end, go till the end. And so we lose, 
we lose time with that just sort of passive scrolling or consuming. And I think that's more of the issue. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think it's very difficult because there's a lot of elements of that that I like. Mm-hmm. You know, like I oh, yeah. I re- I remember appointment TV so much yeah. growing up. That's what I call it, appointment TV. <laughs> I like that. Know? Yeah. And uh honestly, I was so glad when appointment TV was over. Oh, me too. And, but then like some some of these platforms they're trying to go back to appointment TV. And mm-hmm. like they release like three episodes and then they're like, well, you're going to wait for it every week. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to go backwards. I really don't. I'm like, why are you doing this to me? I thought we were past this. <laughs> oh, I know. I preferred like when Game of Thrones was on to wait till they were all out so I could binge them rather than. Yeah, like, you know. exactly. Um, but and, and so that's it. like I, I, I enjoy it. I love a good show. I love a good binge. But I noticed. If I do that, and especially if I do that a couple of days in a row, my mood goes down, mm. energy level goes down, motivation goes down. Um, yeah. So it kind of has this, but while I might enjoy it in the moment, yeah. the effect on me isn't a positive one. And I don't think I'm unique in that at all. Yeah. No, I, I think we're all like, mm-hmm. we're all trying to figure this out because mm-hmm. we've been introduced without any instruction. Right. Without a handbook on how to do this. We're just doing Absolutely. stuff, right? And so, like, we don't know the unintended consequences. We don't know what it means. Absolutely. Is it good? Is it bad? I don't know. Like, today, I'm like, is it bad that I'm looking out at a glacier and the mountains and the water, but also my on my phone talking to you? Right. I don't, I don't right. know. Like, I... I I'm confused yeah. by it in many ways, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it it, it makes me think of the point that... I think there are very, very few things that are inherently good or bad. And so much Mm -hmm. of it depends on the context and the function, right? So if you're on your phone, it's what's the outcome? What is it doing for you? Is it helping you thrive? Is it helping you do the things that are important? Or is it helping you escape? Right. Is it causing problems? I mean, there's been some research that shows even just having your phone out when you're with other people makes them feel disconnected increases loneliness. So, um, that's unintentional. Just even see, even if you put your phone face down on a table, yeah, that takes away. I um, never do that, man. I actually mm-hmm. have this rule. I leave my phone in the car whenever I meet with somebody, actually, I, I don't even wonderful. Look, I just don't, I don't want to be interrupted. I don't want them yeah. to feel like I'm not paying attention to them. Cause I yeah. love like sitting down with somebody, you know, having a drink and just chatting and stuff like that, you know? So, um, but that, that goes back to like, that's something I've instituted, but I don't know right. what's good, what's bad. It's just like, every, it's like the wild west. We're just making up stuff right. to figure out how to deal with right. this stuff. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I love that, that practice though. Um, putting the phone away. Or I heard an interesting okay. one. You might like mm-hmm. this as if people are like, well, I'd have to have my phone out and everybody has their phone out. You stack your phones on top of each other in the middle mm-hmm. of the table and whoever answers their phone first has to pay for dinner. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's like a I weird game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, but it, 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 it helps people then to really focus on being present and showing up. And, and that's going to help, especially like if we tie it back to the loneliness thing, 
I mean, I, I, how many times have you seen, and I've certainly been a part of it where, you know, I'm at a table and everybody's on their phone. Yeah. I'm often not, but part of that is also, I don't want to be self-conscious about my phone text being giant and, you know, being able <laughs> or having to hold it too close. So there's a little bit of like self-consciousness. I'm like, I'm just going to put my phone away. Uh, I don't have a, like one of those smart watches that uh, I've thought about getting either. one, but I'm like, I can't read the print on a, on my wrist anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So You're like, the what's point? the point? Yeah, I can't even and, see this. Right. right, it's like I can't even see it. All it's going to do is just disrupt my attention, and and I I find myself more and more thinking about attention as something that we need to protect yeah. and limit because every time it, we it gets taken from us, it takes effort to put it back, and that's exhausting. I feel like so much has changed since mm-hmm. I was a child and I was oh, a teenager sure. and I was in my 20s and 30s and I'm like mm-hmm. wh- things seem to be speeding up to me yeah. in a way that is so uh difficult to handle in many ways mm-hmm. and I just wonder where are we going as human beings you know For I think sure. as a psychologist how do you view that like where do you think we're headed oh man what I'm hoping is that people are starting to realize and that uh, like the positive psychology side of things, like compassion and mindfulness um, and well-being that we'll start to put more emphasis on that. Uh, and some of the like community movements and world movements, I hope those continue and that we will end up in a really cool place of using technology rather than being used by it. Um, mm, yes. And and being able, it's, it's kind of like with money. Like, I don't think money in itself is inherently evil or good. No. It's sort of what you use. Are you a slave to it? Or are you the master of it? And right. um, so I hope we go that direction. I think if we don't, like what I see working with teens, um, the rates of anxiety and depression and suicide are skyrocketing. And that's terrifying. And I think we need to do some pretty big overhauls or we're going to have this generation uh, of not well people who are, you know, then become the leaders. And I think yeah. we got some work to do. I mm-hmm. think so. I just don't think the world is as bad as online and weird Twitter and all these things tell you it is. You know, I, like, don't think I, made so. a, I made a conscious effort to get off a lot of those things because I just don't want to be, it's like the news. I'm like, well, this right. is like the current version of news. And Absolutely. I don't like the news, so I don't want to be a part of this, you know, and right. I know there's plenty of people who do it and it's fine and they, they enjoy it. It just, for me, it just felt like icky, you know, Agreed. It well, wasn't I know right for me. After the last election, there was so much just negativity and, and not to get into politics, but regardless of where you fell on the spectrum, you know, what I focused on afterwards was one, well, I, I was, um, not uh, a Trump supporter. And Mm -hmm. rather than I had a lot of, you know, friends and colleagues who are very angry, how could people do this? They, you know, vote for him and they must be stupid and this and that. (laughs) I don't see it that way. I chose the, I mean, part of this is, you know, the mindset work I've done, but I choose to see it as they thought that was best. Like it was a, they wanted something different than more of the same. So I found a way to make peace with it. Because like, the way I see it is the more time you're in an angry state, the less time you're in a happy state. And I don't want to do that. And I focus on, uh, because I have kind of removed myself from politics and talking about it. And I've had friends who've who've criticized that. And I've said, the way I see it is I'm choosing to focus on my circle of influence. I can't. Yeah. 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 What's interesting, though, Mm -hmm. is like, we always say these things like, well, let's not talk about politics or let's not talk about religion. And I'm like, why not? 
I don't understand. Like, but maybe it's my lens of like, for me, I, I'm very calm in talking about those things, you know? It, you approach it from a, I, I'm guessing you approach it from a, I want to understand rather than you're wrong and I'm going to win and I'm going to bring you to my side. But when I look at how people talk you're about wrong. that, I'm like, that's not even effective. If your goal really it's is not. to bring people to your way of, of your viewpoint, whether it's politics or religion or vaccine, yeah. whatever it is, attacking is not the way to do it. When someone is attacked, they go defensive, right? Exactly. It's totally so, ineffective. Exactly. Yeah. We like, I feel like dialogue. I can have a conversation with anybody about literally anything. And right. like politics, I don't mind. I mean, yes, I am not a Trump supporter, but I also don't hate the guy. You know, I'm like, right. I'm sure his family loves him. And there are people who really enjoy that. It's just not my thing. But, you know, one of my right. really close friends is a diehard Trump supporter. Should I not talk to him because he likes Trump? I mean, who cares? You know, it's right. just it's what he right. thinks, you know, and. You know, you really talk to him about it. He's like, well, there's a lot of things I don't like about the guy, but, you know, there's other things I do. And I'm like, okay, you know. Right. And, uh, you know, we have a very civil conversation about it. And I just think people just have such a hard time, like, having civil conversations about these things. I'm like. Agreed. Agreed. I don't get it. You know? Well, and that, that kind of goes back to why I feel really passionate about, like, sharing what we know from the field of psychology with everybody, not just in the therapy office, whether you have a diagnosable condition or not, knowing this is how your brain works. And our thinking is not accurate. Brains lie all the time. And they, mm. they take these shortcuts. to, to and, and the shortcuts are there to process information. So it's helpful in a way. Um, but it also backfires. Like things are not good or bad. They're not black or white like that. And in that's a, a thinking error that I see all over the place or, you know, on the worry side, what if this, what if this, what if this, what if this, that's catastrophizing, that's your brain doing what it True. does, but it's not helpful. And so being able to kind of understand, I guess it's, it's understanding how we work and understanding how our minds work, I think allows us to then, uh, I don't know, maybe it's even be more intentional about our thought process or, or our belief system. Speak more about the doing... brain's lie. That caught my eye. Oh, yeah, they do. brain's lie? So our brains have this, they're, they're tasked with keeping us alive, right? That's mm -hmm. the brain's job. It's command center. And um, and they, it, it's sort of in a, in a nutshell, we have the things that are most essential to staying alive are very old from an evolutionary perspective. Mm -hmm. And they're very automatic. Like, so it's the stuff in the brainstem, like keeping your heart beating, your lungs working. And then what develops next is our midbrain, which includes the limbic system. This is like the emotional system, right? Mm -hmm. So anxiety's job is just to be on the lookout for potential threats. That's it. It's not very sophisticated. It just does good and bad. And then it, it hijacks the rest of our brain. We've got this prefrontal cortex, this part that makes us human. This is where rational thinking theoretically right. occurs. But anyhow, going through all of this, so our brain's got this job. It's taking in massive bits of information all of the time, processing it, trying to filter it through. Is it a danger? Making sense out of it. Um, all of this stuff. And it takes shortcuts to do that. And so things like judgments. And a judgment is this is good or this is bad. That's a shortcut that our brain takes. 
Um, but then it, it causes some problems or our brains have this amazing capacity to imagine, like we can daydream, we can predict, but we have a negativity bias. So we're going to tend to expect the worst or, um, our brains with that negativity bias tend to notice and encode or store negative stuff faster, uh, because that's more essential to staying alive, right? Like if caveman ate some berries and they tasted good, great. I hope I remember that. If I ate yeah. something that was poison, I cannot forget that or I'll die. Yeah. So we we notice the negative. But if you don't know this stuff and you just think of like a lot of people just think, oh, my brain is accurate and my thoughts are real. They're reality. They reflect reality. So basically, if you just believe everything your mind tells you, you're in trouble because mm -hmm. it's not always accurate. Um, and it, it just it. it it isn't and learning to either catch it like, Oh, I mean, like I think of the, I go on a soapbox pretty regularly. I think should is the worst word in the English language. It's the most harmful word because it sounds nice. Oh, you should do this. You shouldn't do that. Sounds like I'm being helpful, but the message is because you're not good enough or you messed up, you're a failure. And so I teach people that I work with catch when your mind is saying should that's an expectation. And it's most often going to lead to anxiety, anger, or guilt. Let's find another way to look at it. I teach people, what if is a worry? If it's a what if, we're going to disregard it. That's just anxiety causing problems, creating creating potential disasters. Um, does that make sense? I can I can keep yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes time, sense. But, like, um, oh, yeah, yeah. I've got time. It's, uh, it's, yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by, so instead of saying should, what is the... What would you say? Well, I would say if you can reword the idea without the should, then maybe it's helpful. And if you can't, it's just your brain setting a rule. It's just saying, hey, so for example, uh, I should wear my seatbelt when I'm in a car. Okay, well, that's a should. That becomes an expectation. Can I get rid of it? Absolutely. I can say I choose to wear my seatbelt in a car because it keeps me safe and there's no yeah. downside. So I can catch that idea without that should. But yeah. what about I should be perfect? Right. I want, I want to be perfect. It's not realistic. It's, it's hard to realistic. cut. Yeah. yeah. So I teach people to say like, I want to blank because, and if they can't do that, then it's, that's just your, that's just the inner critic being a jerk basically. Right. It's fascinating stuff. The whole brain mm -hmm. lying to, uh, I, know. Uh, I don't and think then, I've heard that before. Honestly, I don't really think I've heard that. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to, to put it out there. It's, um, it's something, it's, it's a foundational part of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what I, what I do. And so we, we talk about it a lot. I mean, you might see it called cognitive distortions or thinking errors. Sure. I think it makes sense. It's brain tricks and, and, and lies, uh, but it's really important. And that's the thing. Like if you have an anxiety disorder, you have depression and you go get therapy and you find a therapist who does CBT, then you get this information. Yeah. And I think this is critical information for anybody who has a mind. Right, um, which is everybody. So Everyone. I think there's the stuff, yeah, that should be taught in schools. Um, but also, um, it, it could prevent, I think, a lot of unnecessary suffering and struggles if you know this is what brains tend to do, especially under these circumstances. And here's how to counteract it. That can be really, really powerful. What's the hardest part about being a therapist? Um. I, for me, the hardest part is a sense of feeling responsible for someone else's change. 
-hmm. And on the one hand, that's a, it's a very cool thing. And I, I love that. That's, that's my job is to help people change. And when it's going well, it's really, really rewarding, but sometimes it doesn't go well. Um, yeah. I think CBT is great, but it's not a hundred percent effective by any means. It's about 65, 65 to 70% effective. So it's a lot of people who it doesn't work for. And that can be tough to, to be really realistic with myself about what is my, what is my responsibility um, and what isn't, what can I control or affect and what, what can I not um, and to be able to let it go? Cause it's heartbreaking sometimes to see people struggle and see them. Of course. Better. Mm -hmm. of course. You know, it's kind of interesting. Like in my profession of um, exercise fitness, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's very difficult to see people want desiring or saying mm -hmm. I should exercise regular, I mm -hmm. should have more accountability. And then they just sabotage themselves all the time. Right. You know, and or they they make other things a priority, and yeah. don't understand like this is this is your body, this is your mind, this is right critically important. Um, yeah, I think that's that's very difficult. You know. Yeah, well, and that I I think you know half my job is is motivation and teaching people how to wield motivation because it's it's not a hundred percent and it waxes and wanes and I think like to your point, exercise is a great one and people have that all the time. I should work out. Yeah. So there's that stinking word again, right? Like <laughs> it's not actually motivating. We think it is. We think, oh, I have to be critical of myself because then that, that'll motivate me. But it has the opposite effect. When we're criticized, we feel like we're under threat. That gets us out of the logic brain. That gets us into that kind of emotional, that fight or flight response. We're going to shut down. It would be probably more effective to say, I want to work out because and really tap into those values and those reasons why you really want to, to do it or get really real with yourself. I don't really want to exercise right now. It's not a priority and I'm going to make peace with that. At least then you get rid of that guilt. That's not doing anything. <laughs> I think more people should do that. Just be honest uh -huh. and say, listen, I'm not doing this right now. You know, right, right I, now we're in this time of year where, you know, this is, there's a huge struggle with people in exercise going Absolutely. into this season and then turning the corner into January, this mm -hmm. massive guilt. And I should mm -hmm. do this. I should do that. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, it, it cripples people in many Absolutely. ways. You know, it really and, does. And then everybody has the same behavior on a yearly mm -hmm. basis, which is really strange, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. But very common, right? Like people it's are common, doing this. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. doing it. Yeah. I, I it's love really that. common. Yeah. There's this whole field uh, called behavioral economics, which is sort of like uh, economics meets psychology. Economics. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting, but it it's, um, takes this idea, like it, in the field of economics, they assume people are rational beings. And if we're <laughs> rational, we will do these things, right? You laugh because you know we're, we're it's not. It's not true. We are irrational, <laughs> but in very, very consistent, predictable ways. Right, awesome, right. Right, like we will choose present payoff, smaller payoff now, versus bigger payoff later, which is the thing. Like right. I would rather sit and eat candy and watch Netflix than go for a run. Right. right. The payoff now is I get to enjoy this and it's easy, yes. even though down the road, it's going to be so much better for me if I'm right. making out or I'm going to spend this money now instead of saving for retirement. So <laughs> yeah. we, that's a glitch. That's a glitch in our, in our thinking. Totally. Mm -hmm. totally. So, 
it's, it's strange, you know, behavior yeah. that yeah. we do these things to ourselves. I'm fascinated by how we treat ourselves and, you right? know, the, I think that kind of plays into the brain lying aspect that you were saying. Absolutely. You know, it's really strange stuff. Yeah. And I feel like I'm, I'm in a quest to kind of constantly learn uh-huh. what the hell is going on here. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, I would argue that some of the most important things to learn, you know, it's, it's like, oh, I kind of think of sometimes, you know, when, when I love sharing this information with people and kind of seeing the light bulbs go off. And it's kind of like when you have your iPhone and you figure out a, a shortcut or you figure out a feature you didn't even know it had. <laughs> Like, yes, but we've got these biological computers, you know, in our heads and, and no one's bothered to read the owner's manual. And so that's part of my mission in, in life is to get that information out there to say, yeah, here. And, yeah. and you don't have to you know, necessarily get a PhD in it, but knowing some basic things like, hey, you are not your mind. You don't have to believe everything it says. You can yeah. at least question it or ignore it. So it's, it's pretty amazing stuff. Yeah, I, it's, I just always wonder where we're going with all this stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like things are just moving so fast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I just, I feel like more confused than ever about people in some ways. And then I feel yeah. more com- comforted by yeah. people. And I feel more confused by technology, but I feel more um, progressive with technology. Absolutely. You know, so it's like this weird dance right now. Yeah. And I'm just yeah. like, like anybody, I'm just using it. Just going through it and trying to figure out how do I exist in this space and how do I take in nature, but take in technology as well? How do I limit technology, get more nature? It's just very weird. It's just extreme and it's difficult. I think it's very difficult. It is. And it it takes, it, it takes an intention and a lot of balance, I think. Right. And I just not sure how we, handle that completely <laughs> no it really feels like it's just it just feels like we 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 have the power of we have more power now than Ever, maybe we're yeah. supposed to have you know like we have the power yeah. of tr- tremendous power in these phones and and these apps and these things and uh, sometimes do we have the wisdom to con- to regulate these things for ourselves or are we past that i don't know I don't know. I you know it's, it's just that Spider-Man quote that goes through my mind of like with great power comes yeah. great responsibility. And I think that's something that we need to be very intentional about is recognizing, you know, these things didn't come with owner's manuals. We don't know the <laughs> unintended consequences and society has progressed very, very rapidly in a short time. Like if you, if you kind of mark the industrial revolution to now, there's been a ton of change in what our day-to-day looks like, what our lifestyle yeah. looks like our genome hasn't changed, right? right. So, so genetically speaking, we're going to move much, much slower. So we've got these really old um, genomes with these really modern progressive things. And I think that's where some of the strife comes from. I that think we so. need to remember. Mm-hmm. It's hard because I feel like we're, we have this, this huge appetite to move forward. Mm-hmm. And to constantly explore and to climb the next mountain of technology and of existence. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we think of the emotional toll that that Mm-mm. is. So, so I feel like emotionally we're so far behind of the, the technology and the, 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 this tremendous appetite for moving forward. 
mm-hmm. uh, those two things seem to be far apart in many ways to me. And so I, yeah. I have to check myself so many times thinking like, where am I on this spectrum? You know? Absolutely. And I think it's important to, well, I guess that's where it comes back to, to being real about yourself. Um, mm-hmm. Most people grossly overestimate how self-aware they are. Uh, we all think we're very, very self-aware, but research would suggest that we are not. And and I think of it as a lot of a lot of our thinking processes happen sort of behind the scenes, outside of our our awareness. Really, we um, they're just it's, it's habits, it's automatic reactions. So we're just yeah. kind of going down this like old programming, and becoming more aware of that and and more intentional about it. I think is really important, and that that also means lifestyle, right? Like progress for progress sake i would question like what what's your why you know what 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 really matters and are you doing what really matters i see so many people who tell me my family is my top priority that's what i really value and i say okay but you're spending (laughs) 70 hours at at the office and you're unhappy right if your your time has to line up with what's important not to say like we just do fun stuff there's nothing wrong with doing hard work and doing unpleasant things, that's part of life. But if your priority is your family, but you're allocating your time to something else, there's going to be a disconnect there. I think there's a lot of speak that people say like, oh, family Mm -hmm. first and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I just rather people be honest, be like, listen, it's important to me. It's very important, but (laughs) I like doing other things too, you know? Absolutely. Which is absolutely honest. Yeah. I think, well, there's this, we get a lot of pressure, right? It's the shoulds again, what you should right. prioritize. You should be a family first guy. Mm-hmm. You should okay. be, you know? Yeah. It's okay if you're not. I think it's, it's totally okay, to, okay. Get, to get real. Or if that really is your truth, then I think we also get caught up in the expectations, right? Like you are supposed to work hard and then, um, yeah. retire and die. And I'm like, why, um, <laughs> why, why put hot? Like, I think you have to find the balance of, you know, enjoying things now without, without screwing over your your future self so it's sort of that balance thing um but if you're if you're unhappy you can either do the inside work that's mindset and your thinking patterns or change your circumstances do you ever think that a lot of or not ever think do you think that a lot of people's um maybe difficulties in life are self-imposed or is it that all these other forces are acting against them yeah I, I, hmm, that's kind of tough to answer because I, I, I would yes. say, I think a lot of our unhappiness in general is self-imposed, but not in a, it's your fault kind of mm-hmm. way. I think it's sort of our minds do what minds do. And if, and, and most people aren't aware of that. So they, they get kind of locked in these, these spirals or these patterns or habits without even knowing it and, or knowing that okay. there's a different way. Right. Um, right. It's hmm. and, and and I think yeah, it, people don't love this, but um, I'm going to stand by it. You know that Let's we, we tend to look we look externally for happiness, right? If mm-hmm. I get this job, if I had more money, if I had a boyfriend, if I had whatever it is, then I'll be happy. But the reality is, when we look at happiness, only ten percent of our happiness level is accounted for by external circumstances. Ten mm-hmm. percent. So that jolt we get, like that that momentary boost in happiness that we get from an external thing, it's short-lived. We habituate or get used to it, and then you need more. And right. then it's got to be bigger and more. So 
Um, to be fair, about 50% of happiness levels is accounted for by genetics. 40% is going to be internal. That's mindset. That's mindfulness. That's, that's um, belief systems, things right. like that. And that's, I mean, there are people who would say, well, only 40%. Or you could look at it as, cool, that's 40%. That's a big difference. There's a huge difference from 60 and 100 if you're talking dollars. So yeah. it's worth the effort. But I think that's, I think people, pain is inevitable. Life sucks and it's hard. I mean, I, I have degenerative retinas, that kind of stuff. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, people, we lose people we care about. Things don't work out for us. It's not always fair. And that just is. But I think there's a lot of unnecessary suffering that comes, that doesn't have to be there. Like, there's this phrase I like, and I use it with my patients all the time, which is, you know, just because life gives you a cactus doesn't mean you have to sit on it. And I see people, I got that from a meme on Facebook, speaking of social yeah. media, but yeah. um, I see people sitting on their cacti all, all the time and it doesn't yeah. have to be that way. You know what? I think that's a good way to end it. Sounds <laughs> I think good. that was like really <laughs> profound. Sometimes all I never right. know how these things end, but I just like uh -huh. feel it. And I was like, that feels like the end. That's good. <laughs> I I, like, I'm with you. I'm with but you. But you know what? I think, uh, Ashley, by the way, this was fantastic i, mean, I enjoyed it fantastic yeah and I, I have to have you on again at some point in sure the future. Like, i would love you, to yeah you are you're like awesome you're easy to talk to and you have incredibly different points of view that i haven't heard i i have had several licensed clinical psychologists on uh -huh. and why i like to kind of have people in that profession because i think there's different slants of how they see sure. psychology and yours has been very fresh I thank think you. for me. So um, thank you for being on. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And if I can throw one plug in, if Do it. Um, if you or, or if your listeners want more, um, I've got uh, Peak Mind, the Center for Psychological Strength, which is that collaboration of with my my friend and, and partner April is trying to put this out into the world. It's peakmindpsychology.com. We have free resources on there as well as some paid. We have a membership. We, we, we like to think of it as a gym membership for your mind. Right. Um, but we're doing a free webinar um, in the December and there's details at peakmindpsychology.com backslash webinar. So um, we're trying to put it out there, trying to help people. Perfect. You heard it here. So thank you so much, Ashley, and uh, we will definitely be in touch. That sounds great. Thanks. Thanks. Have a good day. Bye. You Bye. Any workout, any mood, any time. That's what the Peloton Tread is all about. From interval runs that motivate you to go the extra mile, power walks that work up a sweat, rolling hill hikes for you to enjoy, and full body boot camps to hit your goals. Plus thousands of workouts that go beyond the tread. Strength programs, core classes, yoga, Pilates, and even boxing. Everything you need on and off the Peloton Tread. Experience it all for yourself with a 30-day home trial. Learn more at OnePeloton.com. Sure, we have 30 seconds to tell you that drivers who switch to Progressive could save big. But then what? Well, radio has been called theater of the mind. So let's tell a story with sound effects. <laughs> Wow, it's like I was in the story. Almost makes me forget this was supposed to be about saving big with Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.